Hey everybody, it's Kendall from Recording Lounge. Welcome to episode 63 of the Recording Lounge podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, I, I did it, guys, I did it. I, I had two shows this month. Woohoo! Um, <laughs> I'm so glad that I, I was able to squeeze these in and got my server issues on just in time. I, I feel bad for not having a show in uh, July. Um, I'm going to try to get back into it uh, and try to do more shows if I can. Things have been really crazy around the studio. Uh, lots of new stuff going on, uh, lots of new clients, uh, real busy finishing up a bunch of stuff that's been going, like uh, one project that I've been working on for over a year is finally finishing up. So that's a big deal. Uh, you know, long projects are really exhausting sometimes, but sometimes just based on schedules and, you know, some people that have large budgets, you know, they, they want to take their time and they want to, you know, sit on it for a while and then, okay, well, let's... Let's hire in a string quartet for this one. Okay, well, all right. Well, that'll take time to get everyone rehearsed. And, you know, so stuff, it can be great, but sometimes it can really... Oh, yeah. Say no more, right? Uh, so today I want to talk about sort of in the similar vein to our last show, we talked about overdynamic vocalists. Um, today I want to talk a little bit about the importance of mixing the vocal early. And that's something that... Uh, is easy enough to say, but there's a lot of things that go into this and, and certain things that come into play. And I'll tell you why it's so important to mix the vocal early, sort of, in a, in, you know, so many reasons, but I'll tell you why over the course of the show multiple times. And the big reason why is because it, it provides context. And so I'll say that probably multiple times. So the point is, if you leave the vocal to the very end of the mix and you just say, okay, well, you know, I, I, you and I both have done mixes where, you know, you've got the band sounding great and then you try to slap on the vocal at the end and it just doesn't work and you, you know, have to EQ the vocal like crazy and then it sounds bad and then nothing's working and your beautiful mix that you've made has been destroyed. So let's take a walk a little bit into the way that we hear things, okay? So... Our ears, as mix engineers, as hobbyists, as just, you know, whatever we are, uh, we have very sensitive ears and very gullible ears. Um, we So if we are hearing, you know, let's say an instrumental of a track and we haven't, you know, mixed the vocal yet, our ears will be trying to mix it as though it was a finished track. So um, we will instinctively have a hard time leaving a space for the vocal, you know, like, because we can't hear what that space needs to be. So our brain is trying to fill up all this frequency space um, and, you know, make it sound full and big, but we're not leaving any holes for anything uh, because we're trying to make it sound as good as we can with what we have. Well, what we have isn't everything. So as you can see, this philosophy also is problematic when it comes to things like drums because a lot of times guys will start with the drums and they'll try to make the drums sound big and huge and then it doesn't work with the track or, you know, they think, oh man, well my, my drum sounds are great but my guitar sounds suck or whatever. And one of the reasons why a lot of guys resort to using samples is because the samples are pre-mixed and not only are they pre-mixed they're pre-mixed by generally really good engineers such as Chris Lord Algae and so these samples that people buy you know they're mixed very well and they're mixed for context they're mixed ready to go 
So the thing is, when guys use samples, they can often get really good recordings of every other instrument because there's a bit of philosophy, and I'm actually doing an entire show about this. I, I've already started recording it, and it's a it's probably going to end up being a two part show, um, but it's sort of about the philosophy of the production order, meaning when do you record things in the production process? So do you record the drums first, the bass first, the vocals first, the scratch track, and then do you do a demo of the whole song and then replace parts? There's a million ways to do it, but there's a whole series of shows that I'm going to do on that because it's so important and it's so interesting to me. Um, so basically, let's get back to the topic here. Um, the importance of mixing the vocal first and mixing the vocal early is it really spans a lot more than just in the mix. Um, for example, let's take it all the way back to the scratch tracks, okay? When you set up to do scratch tracks, a typical production process would be to do a, like a scratch vocal and a scratch guitar, and then you lay down the drums and you lay down the bass, and then you start laying down guitars and keys and the other main instruments, and then, you know, you add the lead vocal, and then you'll add backing vocals, and then you do any overdubs that need to be added, you know, percussion or strings or synths or, you know, additional guitar parts or whatever. That's a fairly common process that has been done time and time again. Um, and another way to do that is the live method, which we've talked about in the past, you know, to do everything at once. And the guys that do live recording and have the capacity to do live recording well, which is generally speaking, a lot of big studios because they have a lot of rooms to put different people in. They have isolation methods. You can get incredible isolation in these large studios because there's so much real estate to, you know, put guys over there, over here. So bleed is not really a problem, and they're amazing-sounding rooms and multimillion-dollar studios that have consoles and every piece of gear you could ever want. So these guys have it easy because they can hear context from the start. They hear everything all at once as it's going to be through the good gear. It's not a demo. It's the real deal, and they can tweak stuff as needed. So... My problem with this is not a lot of people can do this. I often can't do this, and even though I can do it and I like doing it, a lot of bands don't want to do it. They want to do it separate, or they can't all be there that day, or this guy's still working on his parts, or they need some suggestions on the drum part, and you know, and then their bass player, you know, his bass sounds like crap, and you have to rent one. And I mean, there's a thousand things that can happen. So let's talk about the scratch track. The scratch track has a funny little irony in that, yes, you're going to throw it away, but you have to listen to it for a long time because you got to record a bunch of other instruments around it. So even though it's like not important and you're going to throw it away, it is a frame of reference for everyone else. So don't stop looking at your scratch tracks like they don't have to be good. Your scratch tracks, I think scratch track is a terrible term. You know, I think it should be a demo, you know, I think it should be, you know, a vocal and a guitar, a vocal piano, whatever, it should be as good as it possibly can, tone-wise, uh, playing-wise, it's arguable that it should be the, you know, you should get the best possible performance you can on the guide track, a guide track is a better term, I use that term a lot, um, because it really is, that's what it is, it's a guide, it's a guide for more than you know, because let's say you just put up a, you know, an SM57 and uh, you plug in the acoustic guitar direct 
and you just do like a one pass of the song just so um, you know the drummer can play to it or whatever and it's just like oh no it's a scratch it doesn't matter well as you're getting the tones for the drums you will make decisions sort of subconsciously uh, instinctively about the drum sound based on the scratch um, if the scratch for example doesn't have a lot of energy you might feel like the drums you know it, it's hard to separate that and say like no, this section's actually bigger than that. Like, you need to play a little louder or whatever. Uh, you know, it's, it's a little more busy. But the drummer has a hard time in their brain making that connection, too, if it's a session guy sometimes because he hasn't heard the song. Uh, so he doesn't really necessarily know how big that section's supposed to be. You can kind of see what I'm getting at is that everything is about context. And these scratch vocals, these scratch tracks, uh, scratch guitar, scratch piano, whatever, they are a frame of reference for tones, for performance, for dynamics, for timing, for feel, all these things. So arguably, those should be really, really good. I mean, I would say you should even go as far as essentially kind of give it a mix and, you know, not a, not a lot. Don't do a lot to it, you know, but, you know, maybe put some compression on the vocal, EQ it a little bit, maybe throw some reverb on there and tune it. Tune the vocal. Please tune the scratch vocal, okay? I know it takes some time. It takes, you know, depending on how long it takes you, anywhere from 5 to 30 minutes to tune a vocal manually. Um, but tune it. Make it sound good, okay? Pretend that's the real vocal because it is context for everything else. As you're getting tones for things, you know, you should be always... Because that's the other part of this is, well, you might be like, oh, well, I don't, you know, the drummer doesn't really need the vocal. That's more for what just, you know, knowing where he is. That might be true, but instinctively and sort of, like like I said, almost subconsciously, people are affected by what they hear, and they will, if the vocal performance, let's put it this way, even if it doesn't affect him, if the vocal was great and sounded awesome, he might play better. So that's something to consider, is even if he doesn't play worse, he might actually play better if the vocal is good, if the scratch guitar is really rocking. If the scratch piano is like in the pocket and it feels great and the tone is great, I mean, <clears throat> the the actual player might play differently or better or more appropriately if that is sort of as it's going to be. Uh, I'll sort of jump back to the previous statements about, uh, you know, ways to make a record and, you know, some guys will do piece at a time. Another way that people make records... Um, generally people with higher budgets, is they essentially demo out the entire record and then replace parts. And that is kind of a great medium between the two because it doesn't have to be live, but you can get a really good sense for, you know, okay, this isn't just a throwaway, it's a demo, it's kind of important, so I'm going to try to make it as good as I can, and then we're going to record it, you know, for real. The good thing about that is it can allow, even though it doesn't seem like it's saving time, it actually seems like it's taking twice the time, um, it can save you time when it comes to recording the real deal because demos can really be made anywhere. They can be made in a home studio. They can be made, you know, uh, in your bedroom. But, you know, that way you can really figure out, okay, what parts work? You know, how strong do I need to be singing this here? How, how you know, rocking should the guitar solo be? Should it be a little cleaner? Should... You know, uh, I use a fuzz pedal on this, or should the bass be distorted? Should the drums have a higher-pitched snare or a low-pitched snare? You can figure out that stuff beforehand, and then when you go into the studio, 
you're essentially ready to produce your own record and um, you know exactly what needs to go where, you have a plan, you can say, okay, it'll take us pretty much exactly this many days in the studio, give or take a day, uh, so we don't have to waste any more money, we don't have to just sort of indefinitely like just go to the studio and say, you know, okay, well, we have this much money, so this is how many days we, ha- you know, we can book out. I mean, it's much more efficient to know exactly how many days you will need, not just this is how much money we have, but know how many days you'll need and then book out that many because you've planned it ahead enough. Anyway, getting back. So, scratch vocals are important, okay? Don't ignore them. They are really, really important. Scratch guitars, scratch pianos, you know, uh, stop thinking of them as scratch and start thinking of them as a guide and as context because context is everything, okay? So, let's say you've got that, okay? So, you've, you've heeded my warning and you decided to record a great sounding scratch vocal on a scratch guitar for your next production. Well, as you start getting tones for things, you know, you should refer back to it. Not just the fact that you can, but you should. You should be referring back to it to make sure that those things make sense, to make sure that the drum tones make sense, that the guitar tones make sense. And that's something that's tricky for people that are sort of novices because they're trying hard enough, and I I feel for you guys because I was there and I remember it and it sucks. They're trying hard enough just to get drum sounds that are passable let alone get the you know the most appropriate um, drum sounds for the production, but just get drums that sound good in general. But trust me, the more you do it, the more you're comfortable with it, the more you learn about drums and drummers and parts and you know styles of drumming, the more I mean, knowledge is power in that situation for sure, and experience is power in that situation. And dr- recording drums is hard. I mean, there's a lot of options. There's cymbal choices. There's drum choices, there's head choices, there's tuning choices, there's, uh, you know, amount of deadening on the drums, there's uh, room deadening if you want to, you know, put up gobos or whatever to make the sound a little tighter, deader. I mean, there's a thousand decisions that come into play just on the tone. Then you have, how does the player actually play? Which is a new can of worms, right? So, dealing with all those things, if your scratch vocal's good, your guide vocal, I should say, and your guide guitar is good, then you know that you can use it as a reference for tones. Because let's be honest, it's not super, super hard to get a great vocal sound, even in a small room. Usually vocalists are pretty close to the mic. As long as they're not a terrible singer, you can get some great sounding vocals in a bedroom studio. You know, if you have a good sounding mic, a mic that works for their particular voice, which there's a handful of mics out there that sort of work for everyone if you know what you're doing, Uh, things like an SM7 or a 414 or something like that, or like a 214, you know, the lower, the cardioid only version, Um, those mics are kind of just baseline and they're not, they don't have like a really super signature sound, they just work. Um, And so... Even I mean, you can get great vocal sounds out of an SM58. You really can. If the singer's good and they're not too close to the mic and not too far away, um, you know, and you you know know what you're doing as far as compression goes, which we'll talk a little bit that, about that in a bit, um, you can get great vocal sounds out of, quote, cheap mics. Um, just don't make it too bright and don't make it too boomy and don't make it too honky in the mid-range uh, because that can be re- really distract. Oh, and don't make it too essy. Make sure that it's not too sibilant. So if you can just, if you can perfect 
the art of recording a vocal. Not producing a vocalist necessarily. That's really hard and takes a lot of time. I'm just talking about the, the tone right now, okay? Obviously, the vocalist should be good. Obviously, pitch is important. Feel is important. Delivery is important. Um, that's a given. But if you can just try and do some practice to get the best sounding vocals that you can, then you know, and you should feel good about this, you know that you can use it to your advantage as a guide for tones, for guitar tones. I mean, because then you can put up the guitar and say, okay, well, uh, now that we're doing the guitars, you know, for real, uh, I know that this guitar has too much distortion and I know that this part is conflicting with the vocal. I know that this tone is a little too bright. It's conflicting with the vocal. Um, you know, essentially what I'm advocating is that you do a one track mix so that basically when you feel like you could listen to the vocal on its own, then start adding stuff around it. If the vocal is like kind of unbearable on its own, it's not worth even messing with. Um, you really should make sure that because now vocals are one of the few things that should be able to stand on their own. Because again, I'm talking about context, right? So the sound of each individual element is really only as good as what it does to the production. So if you have a guitar that you've thinned out and high pass filtered and low pass filtered and carved out notches and all these things, you should not necessarily feel like it has to sound amazing because if it works in the mix, then it works in the mix and it has a function and it completes that function. But a vocal should be able to stand on its own. Now, some people argue that drums should be able to stand on their own too. And some people still argue that everything should be able to stand on, stand on its own. You know, the theory being that if there was a solo of any individual instrument, you know, if the band cut out and there was a drum solo, if, you know, or a little drum fill, or if the, the, the guitar had a little intro line or something, then it should sound as good as possible. So I think in that way, people get this idea that everything has to sound good on its own. But automation of EQ parameters, compression, reverb, that happens a lot. I mean, I automate all those things on... I'm not afraid to do it on anything. So the way something sounds in a mix on its own may not be how it really sounds the entire song. So don't get caught up in that mindset either. Point is, a vocal should sound really good on its own, and everything can be framed around it, and you can make better productions. Trust me, every time I've done this, just I challenge you, next time you record a song from scratch, from the ground up, something ideally kind of full, you know, with drums and bass and, you know, a full band type production, try doing that. Try recording, you know, the best vocal you can up front. So, you know, do it this way even if you like. Record a scratch guitar, then record the best vocal you can, and then record the real guitar that quick. And then do your drums, your bass, your keys, your whatever else. Um, or, you know, when I say guitar, I mean do whatever the main instrument is. So scratch main instrument just for timing purposes really and you know obviously make sure it's in tune and stuff and played correctly and then sing the best performance that you can or have the singer perform the best performance that they can um tune it mix it make it sound make the vocal sound awesome on its own make it feel emotionally compelling make it feel like if the song just started you know with the vocal only and there was like you know like sort of a vocal solo, if you will, at the beginning, you could listen to it on its own. 
Now, don't get caught up in reverbs, really, and delays and effects, because those are definitely context-based. Um, but the vocal should be able to sit on its own with no effects and sound good. If it doesn't, then, you know, you either have more work to do or, you know, you don't have the right equipment to do it or the singer was poor. That's honestly probably what it's going to be is that the singer didn't sing well and you had to tune the crap out of it or something. Um, so ideally spend, you know, spend time, do a handful of takes, even comp the vocal if you can, you know, don't skimp on the scratch or the guide or whatever you want to call it. That's the big bullet point here today. So now I want to sort of go into, well, how do you get there? How do you mix a vocal? Let's say then, you know, you got your real vocal and you've got your track that sounds great. The importance of starting with the vocal still applies in the mix realm. Why? Because how are you supposed to frame a mix around something that, you know, doesn't sound good? I mean, think of it like your vocal is almost your, you know, your focal point in a photo, right? Let's say you're taking a photo with your camera and let's say it's of your friend at Niagara Falls. Okay, obviously your friend is most likely going to be the focal point uh, of the picture. Because um, it's like, hey, here's my friend at Niagara Falls. And so you have them in focus. And the background is probably partially in focus. And maybe some things are out of focus. And some things are more clear. And some things are farther away from you that are more out of focus. Just because of the nature of how the lens works on a camera. Um but the focal point is your friend, and you want to make sure that they look good in the picture, and they want to they want to look good in the picture. You know, they want to their eyes aren't closed, and you know they're smiling and all this stuff. So that's established that focal point, and so it's kind of like if the picture of Niagara Falls is just you know, oh look here I'm at Niagara Falls. Here's the sign. Like you don't have to necessarily see this beautiful immaculate studio quality photo of Niagara Falls to have that great picture because the point of the picture was, oh, here's my best friend at Niagara Falls. When we went to Niagara Falls, remember that. Okay, great. I hope that made sense. I hope that sort of analogy made sense. Um, because the point is the vocal is the focal point. That's a little bit of an interesting thing to say. The vocal is a focal point. It is the focal point. And it's what sells the song, it's the lyric, it's the story, it's really everything. Now, those of you doing orchestral music, those of you doing uh, instrumental music, those of you doing dance music where there is no vocal, you know, that's a little bit of a different story. But there are usually still lead elements. If it's a piano concerto, then, you know, the piano obviously is the lead element. If it's um, some sort of a dance track, then usually the bass guitar or the bass synth usually is the main instrument. So it's the same type process. I mean, if you're mixing an electronic song, you have to, uh, as Mark Endert said, this is, he actually put it very well on, um, on the interview that we had with Mark Endert. He said, you have to prioritize and get, essentially on each given song, choose what's important and use those as your, as your focal points and work around them. So if you have a song you have to choose what's important. You can't just say, well, everything's as important as everything else. Um, because even though you want everything to sound good, obviously, you have to choose something that's more important. And and granted, keep in mind that just by choosing something, like if you choose that the guitar is more important than the drums, that doesn't mean the drums are going to sound bad. It just means that's what you start with, and then you work things around that. 
that you would rather make a compromise, ask yourself that question. That's a better way to put it. If you had to compromise something in this song, what would it be? Um, you know, and that's a hard question, but it's a good question to ask because usually it's not the vocal. You know, if you had to compromise the vocal, you wouldn't do it, especially not for a client. Um, and if you had to compromise the main instrument, let's say it's guitar, you probably wouldn't want to do that either. If it's a rock song, if you had to compromise the drums, you probably wouldn't want to do that either. So usually, you, I find that in rock songs, uh, the, the instrument that gets compromised the most are guitar and bass. Um, they are EQ'd the most and sort of, you know, they're doubled and tripled and the bass usually has tons of distortion on it. But the drums and the vocal are really what make a rock song. Um, the, the really high energy drums, you know, the high energy vocal... Uh, the guitars are obviously important. That's not, you know, I'm not saying they're not important, but you would rather, you know, get a killer drum sound and a 90% guitar sound if you had you had to have one be less than the other. Um, I know that's sort of, sort of an odd way to look at it, but it's true. So the point is, when you start a mix with the vocal, um, my advice to you is pull the faders down. Uh, there's two ways to really start a mix, honestly, and when it comes to that. I mean, you can start with the faders all up and sort of tweak it. I actually like to start with the faders down. So I pull all the faders, all the faders down, and I pull up just the vocal. And I kind of tweak with it a little bit. Uh, I don't really do EQing at this point because, again, part of it's about context for the vocal, too. I mean, if it's a rock song, then the vocal will probably have less top end than if it was a pop song or, you know, some sort of a ballady song. It might be a little more of an airy vocal. So the vocal needs some track context also. But I usually start working with compression, and particularly I usually start working with parallel compression on the vocal first. So I'll put my vocal across a couple channels, and this is, I'll just go ahead and say, this is not like my method. This is a method that has been used by tons of producers. It's very common in Nashville. I learned it from, I mean, I probably read it in a book somewhere or in a magazine interview or in a, you know, a podcast interview somewhere. Um, I mean, uh, it's basically the idea of having multiple vocal channels that present different things. Um, so you'll have one channel that let's say is just sort of your cut and dry, you know, this is the vocal. It sounds pretty good on its own. You know, maybe you filtered out the bottom end and took out sort of a little bit of weird honky mid-range or whatever, but you didn't do anything else to it. That's sort of your, you know, your default channel, right? Then that channel is duplicated to, let's say, three other tracks, right? Uh, let's say you have one track that's heavily parallel compressed, okay, and maybe a little, maybe a little top end is reduced to reduce some sibilance and stuff. So you have one that's sort of, uh, sort of a big fat vocal that's really heavily compressed. And then let's say you had another one that's more like uh, breathy and airy. So you maybe took out a lot of bottom, but you added a bunch of pretty top end, uh, you know, to really bring out the breath. You know, you might have even put a de-esser on it to help make sure that even though you're adding all this top end, it doesn't get too out of, out of control. Um, and then you have another track that, let's say, is a really mid-rangey, sort of edgy, almost distorted vocal. Um, you know, not pumpy like the, like the first parallel compression track was, you know, fat and warm and just really squish, but fat and, and feels thick to, you know, it doesn't, doesn't feel like a thin sounding voice. Um, and then the, let's say the other one was, uh, the other parallel track was really edgy and sort of like lots of, you know, 600, 700, 800, 900, 1k, 
you know, all the way up to maybe 4K, but then maybe the top end's reduced and the bottom end is reduced, and you have this sort of really mid-rangey, edgy, like I said, borderline distortion vocal tone. So essentially what you then have is a three-band EQ for vocal emotion and sort of edginess and warmth and prettiness but and you can essentially use it as like sort of an abstract EQ right so you've got your big fat compression band you've got your bright pretty band and you've got your sort of mid-range edgy band and rather than play with an EQ you can blend those in with the sort of dry unadulterated vocal and get different flavors of the vocal now provided you need to make sure that if you're doing this all the plugins you're using and your DAW support zero latency and uh, latency compensation or plug-in delay compensation because obviously if you start doing that, you can get into some really phasey stuff really quick. Um, adding you know different tracks of the same thing with different plugins and compressors. So just make sure that you're not getting latency problems and you know delay compensation issues uh, between those because it will start to sound awful. Make sure you're using plugins that are zero latency. I, I know I've said that like 10 times now, but just I want to make sure you get that because it will make none, this process will not work at all if you have even a little bit of latency um, between the tracks. Now, if your DAW, like Pro Tools or Nuendo or whatever, has delay compensation, um, you're fine. But if your DAW doesn't have that, then it won't work. Okay, the only other way that you could really do it is use plugins on that lead vocal track that have a mix knob but um you don't really get the benefits of being able to eq the tracks differently you know so if you have the the one that's super parallel compressed and you need to take out a little top end you kind of have to do it just by ear overall so that's what's really useful about having it on separate tracks is that you know you sort of once you set each one, you kind of set it and forget it, and you almost think of it like blending different mics, you know, and, and it becomes really useful for, for creating different moods throughout the song. Um, you know, your dry, sort of unadulterated vocal might have, you know, need a little help in the bottom end, a little help in the top end, and so if it's a really intimate part of the song, you might push up the bright vocal. Um, if it's a more of a heavy part, you might, like a loud chorus or something, you might push up the aggressive vocal, um, if it's something, you know, where they're singing a little lower, um, you might have to adjust the, the low, you know, squishy fat vocal track, you could call it the fat track, um, up or down, depending on if it's getting too muddy, uh, if you need to add more airiness and, and it's uh, to me, it's in vocals. It's a creative, non-technical, um, way to go about EQing a vocal and processing a vocal because you're getting compression, you're getting leveling from the, com you know, from combining the, the dry track with, um, uh, these other compressed tracks, you're getting a thickening of the sound, you're getting essentially parallel compression, but you're also getting tonal changes. And by doing this, um, you can really affect the mood of the singer throughout the song and make it feel more aggressive and feel more intimate and feel. So whenever you can do things in the mix that make you feel, they're probably a good thing to try because emotion is something that's very much overlooked um, these days, a lot of times when mixing. It's just more about intensity 
And intensity is not necessarily emotion. Like everyone just wants to have the loudest rock song and just the, you know, slammed with compression and it's all up in your face and they want it to hit you really hard and catch your attention. And attention grabbing is great, but we don't want our songs to be like those inflatable tube guys at car parking lots because that's essentially what a lot of it is. It's just a guy waving his hands around saying, hey, come buy this, come buy this, pay attention to me. And that's don't, it's not what we want. We're making art, and we should treat it like art, not like an advertisement, okay? So have some pride and you know treat the song like it is a piece of art and realize that you are literally playing with people's emotions, I mean, with these songs. You can make people feel different ways by mixing the song differently. You can affect the successfulness of this record and, you know, it could become the next great love song if it feels honest and if it feels like a love song. If it doesn't feel that way, if it feels like it's phony and just feels like he's sitting there singing and it doesn't feel intimate. I mean, it's almost like people want to ignore all the, avi- the advice that, you know, these seasoned pros have given people for years and that, you know, I've read, you've read in interviews and all this stuff of these guys saying, you know, you know, you have to get into the song and know what the song is about and, you know, really play on those emotions and read the lyrics and, you know, see what the song is really about. And you have to do it. You really have to, to get effective results. You have to know what the song is about and what it means. The problem is, uh, one of the biggest problems arises when the song has crappy lyrics. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of songs with crappy lyrics out there, but Other than that, then you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what's the point of the song then? If the lyrics aren't good, um, perfect example. There's a lot of top 40 stuff out there uh, that's basically just dance music. And the lyrics are pretty, you know, they don't really have much meat to them. You know, they're pretty much just like, hey, let's party. But the point of the song, what's the point of the song? The point of the song is to get people to dance. The point of the song is to make people have a good time and be on at the club and people drink and have parties and stay out till four in the morning. And that's the point of the song. So if you look at it that way, it doesn't really matter what the lyrics are. In that way, what you should be looking at is how does it make you feel? Is is the bass really kicking and you feel the need to dance? Then good. That's the point of the song. I mean, different songs, different emotions, especially particularly in the vocal, uh, will make you feel different things. If you are not in tune with your feelings while you are mixing, um, then you're probably doing it wrong. You really should be thinking about the song a little bit deeper. Um, even if it's just a pop track, even if it's just, even if it's like a goofy song, you know, even if it's like a, like some weird, weird out cover or something, <laughs> I mean, it, it, you should be thinking about the point of the song and the meaning of the song and the reason why this person wrote it. And, you know, you don't have to get too personal, but the point is, uh, these emotions are things that you can highly manipulate using the vocal and you can do it using the drums too and the guitars, but the vocal is really our primary vessel for delivering emotions to our listener. So with that in mind, do not ignore the vocal, okay? Don't ignore it. Don't leave it till the end. Try some of these methods. Okay, Justin Kneebank. This is, he's probably one of the best at this, okay? 
Um, in fact, him and a couple other guys are the first people I remember reading about back in early 2000s uh, doing stuff like that with the parallel vocal channels. Um, he was one of those ones that I remember thinking, wow, that's really cool. And at the time, uh, I hadn't really listened to much country music and it wasn't nearly as popular as country music is right now. Um, but uh, I remember just thinking, wow, you know, their mixes sound great, but, you know, that's cool and all. I don't, I'm, a, I'm a rock guy. I don't listen to country music. And now, you know, now that I'm doing it as a job, back then I was just a hobbyist, but now that I'm doing it as a job, I listen to everything. So anyway, the point being... Um, listen to the song if you you know whether you like country music or not. You know, listen to the song "Kiss a Girl" by Keith Urban. Um, it's a simple pop country tune, uh, but the mix is so clean and so well done. And it's not a deep song; it's a fun song. But the way that the vocals are mixed, I mean, you just—I don't know—you just feel like he's like the singer Keith Urban in this case is like smiling and having a good time and then the music feels happy you know like it feels like the emotion of the song does and if you can connect those things connect the and Dan Huff I I believe probably produced that record um, and he is just a phenomenal producer and so when the production gets across the point of the song whether that's through the recording and the writing and the lyrics and the vocals and the mix and all this stuff, when all of those things line up, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I just love this mix. I love the drums. They're not overdone. I love the guitars. I mean, I love the rhythms and the hooks. There's a lot of great hooks in that song. Just, It's just a very simple production that really nailed it in terms of you know, just the feel and everything. And there's a lot of different... I mean, this is just a, the literally the first thing that came to my mind when I started talking about Justin Kneebank. Um, was that mix. But I mean, there are thousands and thousands of great songs out there that just nail an emotion, whether it's metal, whether it's opera, whether it's country, whether it's folk, indie, rock, jazz, any of these things. There are great songs out there. And when you hear it, when you hear that emotion, and it's kind of like interpreting a movie, you know, some people, two people can watch the same movie and one person didn't like it and one person loved it. Well, that's how it goes with songs too. You know, you listen to a song and you get the connection. You get the connection that's being made between this, the music and the lyric, and it makes sense to you, or the lyric is relevant in your life. Or, um, you know, I think as uh, producers or engineers or mixers or hobbyists or whatever, uh, all of us are here listening to this show. First and foremost, we need to remember that we are music lovers and listeners, and we need to care for music as a whole, as an industry, as an art. Um, and care for these artists that come in and realize that they are trying to get across something or they're trying to have fun or they're trying to make a statement or they're being angry, they're getting, they're venting off some steam. I mean, they have a purpose. There was a purpose for this song. So don't underestimate it, okay? So when you start with the vocal, I'm tying all this back in. Uh, when you start with the vocal, you have an immediate look at the emotion that will be displayed for the rest of the song as well. Not just the tone, not just the volume, not just the EQ or compression or whatever, not just the effects, but you have the insight into the emotion of the song. So if you can nail the guide vocal track 
and get good tones around that, and you can nail the real vocal track, get good tones, get good emotion, get great takes, great pitch. You know, you comp them all together and you get this solid vocal, okay? Solid starting point. And then you can start to get a basic mix with the vocal going um, and get the and, and start to focus on the emotion of that vocal. Um, which again, you should have probably been doing from the start, okay? All these things sort of tie in to each other. Um, but if you can then get into the emotion of that vocal on its own and try to figure out what is the vocal trying to say, and if you can't find the inspiration there, you know, listen for the music. Is the music trying to say something? Is the music sound sad? Is the music happy? What's going on here? Um, what am I, why, why was this song written? What's the purpose? What's its purpose? What is it? What is it trying to get me to do? Is it trying to get me to sing along? You know, uh, is it, it, like, for example, there's so many songs right now that have woes and, like, you know, gang vocals, as they're called, right, are commonly done in anthem-type songs, and their purpose is to get you to sing. Like, they sound like other people, like a group of people singing, and their purpose is to hope that when you listen to that, you're going to feel like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm one of them, I want to sing along, I want to you know, sing that part of the song, and it is even, like I said, it's almost some subconscious. I mean, people will listen back to that track with all the woes and the haze and the yeahs and all the other gang vocal parts, and they will just want to sing along to it. They can't help it, okay? We're human beings, and we have habits and traits that, you know, we just almost can't escape, and I feel like that's one of them. You know, if there's claps in a track, it kind of makes you want to clap, and if the song has a really, really kicking bass and kick drum, it makes you want to dance or tap your foot. I mean, it's just how we work, right? So you have to play on those things, and if you can't, then you're missing a serious element of record production that really can supersede any EQ or compressor, compressor or tonal thing or effect you can do because the brain will respond a lot more to emotion and feeling and vibe and how does it make you feel when you listen to it. And as a musician, you know, you respond to tones also, so that's important, but you respond to parts. You respond to which parts are featured, okay? So you can't, you know, you can't just feature everything all the time. Things have to come in and out and grab your attention and make it exciting while still referencing back to the emotion of the song referencing back to um, the point of the song, referencing back to the vocal. So let's get back to our theoretical mix, okay? So you got your vocal up, you got it sounding good, you feel like you've got a pretty good handle on the emotion, you don't try to get the vocal 100% yet, okay? You can't, because effects can also add certain emotion to the vocal. You know, if you add in a, a big delay on the chorus, then you can get sort of more space and more sort of like anthem or, you know, more just size to the, vo the voice, okay, which is really cool. So um, you then start pulling up your fader. So in my case, I'm pulling up the fader. Some of you, you know, will not do that, you know, but don't, from this point on, after you get that vocal sounding good, try not to solo anything. Um, you can solo it for just a little bit if there's something you need to fix, but if you're trying to mix it, so that's where, you know, you have to go back to that, and we've talked about that before, the difference between fixing something and mixing it, okay? So if there's a ringing in the snare that you need to fix, like, then fix it, you know? That's not a mixed decision. That's like a, you know, essentially you're correcting something that was recorded poorly. If something just has an ungodly amount of low end and you need to filter it out, then filter it out. 
But those are things that you're fixing. When you actually start mixing something, never do it alone. Don't do it on its own. Like, don't just sit there and kick drum land for 20, 20 minutes. Okay, get that vocal up, get the vocal working, and then, uh, I, like I said, again, the vocal is the exception to this rule. So get the vocal working, then, you know, pull up the kick snare and the overhead, okay, and just start working with it. And don't, the, the, I, I know this is starting to seem a little counter, counterintuitive about what I'm about to say, but don't reach for processors at first, okay? So if you get, if you can nail the vocal, the rest of the song, I just trust me on this one. This is something it took me a long time to learn, but it has saved me so much time um, and frustration. If you can nail the vocal and nail it early, the rest of the song, if it's a good song and it was recorded decently, can kind of mix itself. Um, you don't have to do nearly as much stuff as you thought. Um, when, when I realized this simple fact of mixing the vocal early, if not the very first thing, and... You know, and I, I should admit, on certain songs, it's a little hard to mix the vocal by itself. So, you know, you can throw in a little bit of another instrument, but don't touch it. You know what I mean? Like, just leave it in there as a reference. Particularly, I'm thinking about, like, slow songs. You know, they're kind of tricky to mix, you know, where there's, like, gaps in between the vocal phrases. But point is, you're mixing the vocal at that point. You're just leaving up the other thing as just a, you know, just a chord-changing element, just so you can kind of hear some context. But... Get the vocal right up front, and the rest of the song, the mixing is so much easier. I cannot tell you how true that is, and if you don't believe me, just try it, okay? If you're struggling with a mix, you know, save a copy as of that mix and start over, and make sure the vocal is as good as you can make it, okay? So if you got to tune some notes, then tune those notes. If you need to edit out, you know, the noise or the breaths between notes, then edit them out. If you need to DS it and EQ it and compress it, then do it. But don't overdo it when it comes to EQ on the vocal. Okay, the, all these things said, a vocal can handle a ton of compression. It's a very dynamic instrument, as we've talked about already. Um, but EQ on a vocal is really something that you need to be extremely cautious of because the human voice is probably the most heard instrument out of all of the voices that we record. I mean, we talk to people all the time. We hear our own voice. We hear voices all the time. Well, not unless you're crazy. You don't hear voices all the time. But um, we hear the human voice everywhere we are. And so we're very accustomed to hearing what a voice sounds like. And if you overdo it, it's going to sound overdone. And sure, you can add, you can get away with some, you know, certain things that have almost become like archetypes of pop music, like you know, a really bright, airy top end. Sometimes you can get away with that. Not on everything, but sometimes you can. Sometimes you can get away with sort of a big, fat, extended bottom end. So the point is, if you can nail the vocal, get it sounding really compelling, not just good sounding, but compelling, where you can turn it up, you know, play it on some different speakers, and it just sounds good and interesting, and you want to listen more. If you can nail that, you know, and then next, go on to the drums. Push up the kick, snare, and the overhead, okay? Maybe the kick, snare, and room mics if you need to. Um, I like to just do kick, snare, overhead, and I push them all up at once. Try to push up, you know, channels in, in, in pairs or something. You don't always have to even just push up kick only because mixing kick and vocal is kind of weird. Um, so push up the kick and the vocal and the snare and the overhead and start to kind of get a basic balance, Okay. Maybe pull in some of the room mics if you have them. Maybe pull in some of the tom mics if you have them. Pull in the hi-hat if you need it. Again, pull in things as needed and don't add something until you feel like it needs it. 
Um, I did a mix last night, for example, where I did the I worked on the vocal for a while. I ran it to some outboard gear and brought it back in and got the vocal really sitting nice. I pulled up the kick snare in the overhead and I was like, man, I don't think I need anything else. But as we started adding other tracks, I ended up putting in the tom mics and then I ended up editing out the space in the tom mics um, between fills because you know I, I, I ended up EQing the toms. And then I ended up needing a little more room mic in there once everything else was in to kind of not make it sound so dry. So add things as needed, okay? Work responsively, you know, respond to what you're hearing. Don't just think about what, oh, I need to add in the room mics and get a little reverb on it. No, you don't. Respond, react, okay? Mixing is a performance. It is live, okay? You're doing it. Don't, mixing is not something that you just do, you know, sort of passively and like, oh, well, I should do this and blah, blah, blah. You're not building a desk. You're building a mix, okay? It's, it's not something that has instructions. It's something that's responsive. You know, it's in the moment. It's almost like cooking, you know? It's like, oh, it needs a little salt. Okay, do that. Okay, uh, now it needs, it's a little dry. Now it needs some water or, you know, oh, okay, I need to do this and... Maybe I shouldn't do this sauce. I should do this sauce because now it's kind of tasting a little different and I just kind of want this now. You need to react to what's happening in the moment when you're mixing. So I know this is like a big motivational speaker thing. I should, I should do seminars, but um, point is, add things as needed. You add in your drums, kicks in your overhead. If you need room mics, add them in. If you need close mics, add them in. If you don't have room mics and you want to add some verb, add it in. Respond. Don't, don't think about what you need to add because you don't need to do anything. You need to follow the song and you need to react to the song. So don't just say, oh, well, it sounds dry and I need to add some reverb. Don't think about it so much like that. Think about it more like, okay, the vocal's dry and the drums are dry and so right now it works, okay? What, what else is going in here, okay? So don't, don't jump to anything too quickly, okay? Be smart. So then kicks in your overhead, let's say. Add in your bass, okay? Now the bass is taken up to the low end, so maybe you need to add in your tom mics, okay? So you push up your tom mics, okay? Maybe then you start adding in your, your main instrument, right? Uh, let's say it's acoustic guitar in this case. So you add in your acoustic guitar. And again, try not to do too much to these things. Try not to just start flying off the handle and compressing them or EQing them. You know, you can fix things that need to be fixed, but try not to really do much mixing to it yet. Just work with the faders, okay? Work with the faders. Um, try to find a section that is interesting to you. If it's the verse, then try to find that and just maybe put it on loop or the chorus uh, is obviously a great spot to start. Um, me personally, I find that if I start with the chorus, I don't leave myself anywhere to go. Um, I kind of like to start big and then build up. If I work on the chorus, sometimes I'll like, I'll make it sound great. And then, oh crap, there's a bridge and it has to be bigger. So I kind of try to start from a low point and sort of gradually work up. Um, and I know I, uh, one of my best friends who's, a, who's an engineer, uh, he does the exact opposite. He finds the absolute biggest section of the song and makes it as big as he possibly can. And then just removes stuff, um, as he goes on. <laughs> so, you know. He also mixes with his faders up at the beginning and then pulls them down. So that, you know, pulls down stuff as he doesn't need it anymore. So that's it's just interesting how that works. I start with my faders down and push them up. So anyway, 
Um, so you got your acoustic guitar working, right? You got your bass and your kick snare overhead toms, and you got your vocal. Okay, then slowly start adding in the other elements, little by little, and just work with faders, and then start working with some pans. Okay, so then you're starting to pan some stuff. Um, you're starting to work with the pans of things. You know, just feeling the flow, reacting, right? Um, that's what I'm. That's what I'm talking about. You know, is is reacting to the music, and I swear to you, if you have context for what the emotion and the tone and the vibe and the energy and the dynamics are, you can mix a song very quickly. It's incredible how quickly you can mix if you do it this way. Um, this is sort of a, I wouldn't call it a secret, but this is sort of uh, my little sort of dirty trick for this because it took me so long to learn it. It's almost like man, is that like my, my, my big mixing secret? But it's really not a secret. People have been telling you, you know, like I said, in interviews to do that for a long time. It's just, you ignored it and you're, you somehow learned, like I learned initially to start with the kick drum. Um, maybe it's from a live background where usually, you know, you start mic checking the drummer first, but in a mix, it's not a mic check. You know what I mean? It's, you're mixing a song. You're not checking mics. So you don't have to start, well, you can start with whatever you want, but ideally start with the vocal um, and build things around it. Once that vocal is essentially worthy to have other things around it, you know, if the vocal is commanding and interesting, everything else will fill a spot. And then you'll find, wow, I used a lot less EQ and wow, I used a lot less compression and wow, I really focused more on dynamics and wow, my song doesn't sound crushed and Wow, my song doesn't sound over-EQ'd, and wow, I did that in two hours instead of, you know, a days working on this mix. So, I hope this has given you things to think about. Whew, I'm out of breath. That was a very large rant. I hope you understand my appreciation of, and, the, and my value of a vocal in a performance and my value of the vocal in a mix and how important it really is to nailing a good mix. And I can tell you with almost complete certainty that my favorite mixes that I have done are mixes that I've started with the vocal. So if you have questions about any of this, if you have suggestions for podcasts, if you have questions about anything sort of audio related, if you need freelance mixing and mastering work done for your project, contact me at recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. My line is always open. I try to respond to your emails uh, as soon as I can. I love hearing from you guys. Thank you very much for emailing me and keeping up. You can check out the Facebook page, facebook.com slash recordinglounge. And you can check out the blog, recordinglounge.blogspot.com for sort of an every now and then blog with some interesting thoughts. Um, I love you guys. I'm so thankful to have you guys as listeners, and uh, I like when you guys are contributing on the Facebook page. Feel free to ask questions there, too, and feel free to respond. It's not all about me, okay? I'm all in there with you, right? I'll be there. I'll be helping. I'll be answering questions. I'll keep making podcasts. Uh, you guys keep contacting me and uh, keep recording. Talk to you guys next time.